the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together today, and uh, we've got a lot to cover. In a few moments, we will speak with uh, my old friend now, I consider him a friend, the author of Old Abe, John Cribb, who will fill us in on Abe Lincoln. It said Old Abe is a new book uh, about a year old, well, seven months old, uh, about historical novel about Abe Lincoln, especially from the time when he won for the presidency through his death. And it's extraordinarily well-written and really interesting. So we'll talk with John Cribb and uh, get an update. Of course, uh, Abe Lincoln's birthday is Friday, uh, the 12th of February, uh, and uh, will be celebrated across the country uh, in many, uh, well, as a federal holiday on Monday. So uh, we will have a show, though. Don't fear not. Uh, we will have a show. Great to be with you again, Ed Martin. Please go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com to sign up for uh, the Daily Wink and to otherwise follow our great interviews and our great guests. Uh, we will... Um, we will. We appreciate that. All right. We also will uh, talk in a few moments today about the key issue that's facing this country, election integrity. A gentleman named Kurt Hyde, who is writing about this at TheNewAmerican.com. After two and a half weeks of Joe Biden undertaking policies that benefit the Chinese regime. Policies like reversing the, uh, the the executive order that makes it mandatory for uh, universities to report who's giving them money from China, the so-called Confucius Institutes, uh, changing a bunch of the rules that have to do with uh, with the immigration question, uh, allowing the Wuhan virus to be categorized by the World Health Organization, of which we're now a new partner again, as not China's fault and blaming America. That's what the WHO did. And of course, rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, which is the really the funniest thing if you're the Chinese regime. You're like, you guys are actually going to go in there and, and cause yourself all kinds of regulatory tie-ups, money uh, requirements. Oh, that's great. So after three, almost three weeks of basically policies that are beneficial to the Chinese regime, Joe Biden finally called the president of China, President Xi. And he called him uh, late on, uh, I guess, late Wednesday in time to be able to say, Happy Lunar New Year. Happy Chinese New Year, because the Chinese are celebrating their New Year. Now, here's what I want to contrast. I, I don't. I, it's probably not bad to talk to people about their holidays or their birthdays or when President Trump used to be nice to Kim Jong-un. I didn't. I used to say he was playing a, a game that had to do with be nice and give the guy that's a dictator some room to be uh, have safe face, even as you hammer him uh, below boards, which is what Trump did. So Trump actually, I said this on my Periscope. President Trump had had President Xi uh, as the first foreign visitor to the United States while Trump was president. I think that's right. It was early in 2017. And uh, President Xi visited Mar-a-Lago. And then remember, Trump visited um, China. So Trump tried to do that um, uh, uh, be nice to the big guy routine. But at the same time, he was, um, you know, kicking China where it hurt. 
on trade, on regulatory. Remember, Trump dropped out of the Paris Climate Accords right away. Trump started criticizing the international organizations that the uh, that the uh, President Xi in China likes to do. Trump started talking about the reinvigoration of the Monroe Doctrine, which says that stay out of our hemisphere if you're foreign influences that are not compatible with America. So Trump was doing all the things that asserted American interests while he was being nice above board. Biden is giving all the ground on things that matter to America and China, including, by the way, um, we're not going to prosecute the people who are bringing fentanyl across the border. We're not going to we're not going to we're not going to even enforce the border at all which President Xi must be like, great, we can still poison your youth. And you're in your as uh, Josh Hawley said, the deaths of despair will continue to grow because Joe Biden is, is happy to let the border be open anyway. And then he calls him to say, happy Lunar New Year. You got to think that over in China, they are just chuckling at what's happening here. The leader of the United States is calling to say happy Lunar, Lunar New Year. We have massive issues that we should face, uncertainty about our economy, questions about how to handle the quote unquote science that's being shoved down our throat. And China is watching the, the narrative machine use a fake impeachment to drive half the country crazy. Maybe two thirds of the country, no, half the country crazy. And when I say half the country's crazy, half of it's crazy on the left and half on the right. That's what they're doing. And if you don't think that the narrative machine made up a big tech, made up a big media and made up a big government, in this case, the left, the Democrats in charge, isn't carrying water for the Chinese regime, isn't carrying water for in their direction. Last night, Mandalorian, this uh, Star Wars related series that Disney does, they fired one of their stars who is more conservative after having filmed in China near where the Uyghurs were. By the way, I get a lot of this information from Jack Posobiec. He's a very reliable uh, online presence and a reporter for One America News. You should, too. But that's what we're dealing with. So we have America, our American president, wishing Happy New Year, even as America. And, and, and by the way, yesterday, uh, the Chinese must also be laughing their tail off. Can you imagine they're looking over and seeing us? We're going to keep our kids out of school. We're going to keep our kids out of school doing distance learning because the teachers unions are holding us hostage and we're going to stunt the growth and development. Although I I had a conversation with a friend of mine today and he said, hey, maybe it's better that the kids are kept out of public schools because they're so they're so darn bad. Maybe it's better that they're driving kids into private schools. I went to my daughter's birthday party last week and she's in. um, Well, she's nine. She turned nine years old. And uh, and some of the kids are in her class. I think a few are in the class grade above her. I can't remember right now, but a whole bunch of the parents there were 10 kids there. Two or three had switched their kids into private schools when the public schools wouldn't open. So maybe that's better. Maybe it's better. But I have to say the combination of the uh, of the guidelines from science, quote unquote, and the realities of what's happening to the economy, it's terrible. It's terrible. And China's looking at it going, huh, you guys are going to fight over a, a sham impeachment, even as Eric Swalwell who has either been credibly accused or has admitted a relationship with a woman who turns out is a is a Chinese spy. Either one of those true is true. I'm not sure which. He's up there as one of the impeachment managers. And as someone said, he's only able to be an impeachment manager because nobody knows at CNN. On C- CNN viewers don't know Eric Swallow had that problem. Fox News viewers do. But they're not catering. The, the narrative machine is not catering to the people in, the, in either side. They're just managing their narrative machine to damage the country. It's a terribly difficult time. I recorded this morning um, 
my radio commentaries, which run every weekday across the month of March, I was recording, and I was in there talking about this incredible uh, article by Vaclav Havel, uh, the Czechoslovakian first president after the uh, wall fell in 1989, after communism fell, and his extraordinary essay, The Power of Powerlessness, uh, talking about how uh, the government doesn't have to actually silence you. They can make all of the apparatus of society make it difficult for you to function in such a way that you just want to be compliant because you want people off your back. Self-censorship. That's the threat right now. It's not censorship. It's self-censorship. Will you stand up for what's right? Will you stand up for what is good? Will you stand up in the face of cancel culture? It's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. We've got a lot to face. All right. Uh, we've got these great guests today. We'll take uh, all that and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You know, the other night when I filled in for Andrea Kay, I took the opportunity to have uh, my friend John Cribb on. And John Cribb is the author of a book. I'm holding it in my hand. It's called Old Abe. It's an extraordinary, it's a novel, historical novel, published by Republic Book Publishers. And it's really good. It's perfect at this time of year, of course. I had him on the show maybe three months ago. The book came out um, in the middle of last year. It's just a really, really interesting, good book. So for those listeners that are listening, both Andrea and I, the Andrea on this one, you get a double dose of John Cribb. So welcome back, John. How are you? Great, Ed. Thanks for having me back on. I really appreciate it. Well, so here's my first question. I've been thinking about this since the last time we talked. I couldn't wait to talk to you. Did anyone ever try to impeach Lincoln? We've learned so much about impeachment. And of course, his successor, President Johnson, was impeached. But was there a movement that impeachment existed at the time? Right. It was in the Constitution. So was there a movement to impeach Lincoln? Yeah, I mean, nothing serious. If there was one, it, it certainly wasn't anything serious. Now, he did have his hands full sometimes with uh, with Congress. Um, you know, uh-huh. the, uh, the the war, the war Democrats, or the, the Copperheads, as they were called, uh, were right. sometimes after him. And then the Radical Republicans uh, were sometimes after him. And they had a mm. committee on the conduct of the war that was looking over his shoulder all the time. Uh, but, mm. uh, no, but, but, but then uh, they really, there were Republicans who were so convinced that he could not win re-election that they actually uh, bolted and held their own convention in the, uh, mm. in, you know, for, the, for the, the election of 64, in the summer of 64, and they nominated John Fremont uh, to run against huh. uh, Lincoln, who was, who was also a Republican. So they tried to knock him huh. off that way. Um, and it really did look going, like going into late summer of 1864 that Lincoln would lose re-election. He was convinced he would lose. He told a friend of him, he says, you don't think I, I know I'm going to be beaten, but I know I'm going to be beaten in badly. Uh, then, however, hmm. uh, in early September, uh, Sherman uh, took Atlanta, and that that telegram from from Sherman saying Atlanta is ours and fairly won changed everything. And all of a sudden, uh, Lincoln was the front runner, and he he had a pretty easy time being reelected. Uh, we're talking with John Cribb again. The book is called Old Abe, and you know I, I sometimes skip it. I know it so well now. I skip telling people about it. Um, the book actually recounts uh, it's a historical novel of the last five years of Lincoln's life, so up to his death, obviously. But he the the, the timing is wonderful because it's right when he's uh, nominated. There's a description of he's in Springfield, Illinois. The nomination is up in Chicago, and all these kinds of details. It's it's pretty cool. Um, but um, I want to ask you, uh, uh, John, about. After he died, um, did Mary Todd Lincoln? Did the, what did the Lincoln? He he's buried now in um, 
in uh, in Springfield, Illinois, Springfield. in a in an interesting yeah. uh, Springfield. Sorry, in a very um, impressive yeah. uh, mausoleum or whatever you call it, but but actually in the middle of a of a um, of a big cemetery. Not like a it, you sort of go in a cemetery. There's a lot of things around. There's a huge, wonderful. It's really incredibly impressive. But did um, did Mary mm-hmm. Todd Lincoln go back to Springfield? Did his body went back right? And uh, but what happened to that family after he was gone? Yeah, well, it pretty much fell to pieces, and the the the, the you know the monument he's buried in now is, was not there at the time. That was built since his uh, his internment there in, in the cemetery. But um, right. Mary, uh, you know, she just would have a very very hard time uh, coping, and she stayed in the White House. They pretty much had to you know had to um, drag her out. It's too strong a word, but they, they had to. Uh, the Johnson administration had to kind of ask her if we could have it. She 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 ended up living in Chicago for a, a good bit of uh, the rest of her life. She traveled some uh, in Europe and she lived in Chicago. And she you know she she was it was hard for the rest of her life. And uh, her mm. their son Tad um, died as a teenager after Lincoln uh, was gone. So mm. their older son Robert was the only surviving son. Mm. And he for a while had Mary, his mother, uh, committed. Uh, because she was, you know, she was doing the same strange things like she had a huge amount of money sewed in the, the hem of her garment that she would just walk around with. And, and, and anyway, he he had her he had her committed for a while and then she was able to uh, to, you know, to, to be released again. It's a very, very sad story. I mean, really, you know, the war was just so, so, so hard on that that whole family. It really it really tore it apart. Yeah, uh, we're talking again with John Cribb, and the book is called Old Abe, available, available anywhere you buy books and published by Republic Book Publishers. Um, John, uh, the Lincoln, um, as a, as a writer, um, he obviously, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which precede the book, this old age, the historical novel goes from the, just about the time he gets the nomination, runs for president and wins. So, but he was obviously a great speaker. Those, those Lincoln-Douglas yeah. debates, if God had willed it that we could record them, um, they were, you know, they speak for an hour before taking a break for, and then speak another hour and hours and hours and hours. Yeah. But was, and, and was his writing, was he a writer, uh, of that caliber of his speaking? Is that, is that something he spent much time I'm on in the White House. Yes, yeah. They, he um, he really he wrote his own stuff for the important stuff. Uh, and he had a couple of, of you know uh, secretaries who could draft letters and write some stuff, and then his cabinet secretaries you know wrote some documents. But the big stuff, the Gettysburg Address, the Second Inaugural Address, you know that kind of stuff, he wrote himself, and he worked very hard at it. Lincoln knew that that words were very important, so he worked very hard on, on those speeches, and he was a master at uh, using the mass communication media at the time, which was newspapers. And he would make sure those mm. speeches got to the right editors and that they were published mm. so that he could go, you know, the people could, could read his words uh, directly. He was really the first president to take advantage of mass media communication in that way. But, huh. but yes, he, 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 he was a wordsmith. I mean, he really was. It, and it's interesting, he, when he was a young man living in, in uh a little frontier village called New Salem, Illinois, uh, just yeah. west of Springfield, tiny little frontier village. He just he realized that if he was ever going to be a good speaker and writer, he needed to know more grammar because you know you know he had less than a year of formal schooling, uh, and so right. uh, his whole life. So he walked six miles to borrow a grammar book called Kirkham's Grammar, and he took it back to New Salem and he read it and he memorized every rule. And he would have people test him on the rules till he had you know kind of polished the rough edges off of his uh, off of his grammar. 
It, that's what I was going to ask. He, uh, he, so he just sort of uh, decided to do it. I mean, uh, you know, this, as I, I, I heard someone say recently, um, don't tell me what you want to do. Tell me what you're going to decide to do. And so he just decided, uh, and that's what I was going to ask. Did he have a mentor that was a, a great writer? Uh, part of the reason I asked this, again, we're talking with John Cribb, who himself is a writer and uh, has written this book all day. But I, part of the reason is my old, my old boss, Phyllis Schlafly, she was so convinced that writing was what made you a clear thinker. And then make, writing yeah. made you a clear thinker and made you a clear speaker. Did he have mentors yeah. that helped him write? Did he have, was, was uh, Mary uh, Lincoln one of them? I mean, who was, who was on his side uh, helping him with that? No, as a matter of fact, he was, he was asked uh, in, a, in a, a, a campaign biographer asked him, you know, about his education. He really put on self-taught, self-educated. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he did, when he, that, that, when he borrowed that grammar book back when he was a young man, there was the, the village uh, school teacher was a fellow named Mentor Graham. By coincidence, his first name was Mentor. And he hmm. uh, helped uh, Lincoln to some degree. And also when Lincoln became a surveyor when he was a young man, uh, to help pay bills, uh, he got he got he, he got hold of a, a book of trigonometry and surveying and uh, studied up on it. Adventuregram helped him uh, some with that. But he really was self-taught. You know, he he taught himself the law. He he got hold of a law book mm-hmm. and he uh, you yeah. know as as many people did back then. They didn't go to law school. You know, he just read the law until he knew the law. So um, he really was by and large uh, self-taught. And as I say, he had only had less than a year of formal education, and that took place in little log cabin schoolhouses when he was uh, when he was very young. All right. Same question on speaking. He obviously he became very effective as a speaker. How did he teach himself yeah. to do that? Was it the study of the law? Or was it uh, others around him that that he felt, uh, you know, that he watched and learned from? Yeah, he did. When he was uh, well, when he was very young, he uh, used to live in Indiana. Um, he used to walk miles sometimes to uh, county courthouses to sit and watch lawyers make arguments in hmm. court. And he was hmm. fascinated by that and the words uh, that they used. Uh, and when he was young, he also uh, used to climb up on tree stumps and, you know, give little mock speeches to other other kids in the area. And uh, when itinerant preachers would come through and give their sermons on Sunday, and then on Monday, sometimes Lincoln would, would re-give the, the sermon standing on a, on a tree stump just to practice um, speaking. Mm. But same thing, he pretty much taught himself. And, and, you know, he got better as he went along with both reading, uh, both writing and speaking. If you look at his early uh, writings uh, from uh, when he was a younger man, uh, the language is more florid and, you know, more adjectives, more adverbs, uh, kind of the way you think of 19th century language. By the time he was president, he'd really pared it down and knew the economy hmm. of language and made every word uh, mean something. So he, he really, again, you know, gradually taught himself to be a great speaker and a great writer. Well, it's a fascinating book, and I appreciate it so much, John, taking some time uh, the other night with uh, on the Andrew K. Show and here on our show to talk about Old Abe. It's a, Well, to talk about Abe Lincoln, and then also Old Abe is the novel by John Cribb. Uh, it's really wonderful. It's it's a great read. It's not it's a historical novel, but it reads like a novel does. And, and as you sort of r- ramp along and bump along in this, you're like, well, I know Abe Lincoln, but I didn't know all this context. It's, a, it's really an, a, an extraordinary achievement. So thank you, John. Enjoy all the attention on Abe Lincoln, who you know so well. Uh, these days and we'll look forward to talking again sometime soon. 
Thank you, Ad. I appreciate it. And happy birthday to Abe. Uh, at 212 <laughs> years old uh, tomorrow, February 12th. 212 years old, February 12th. Well, thank yeah. you. And uh, again, the book is Old Abe, a novel by John Cribb, available anywhere you buy books, uh, published by Republic Book Publishers. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. One of the most important topics that people must discuss more is restoring election integrity. And that's the uh, topic, the, the title or the, the, the heading on a piece written by Kurt Hyde over at uh, thenewamerican.com. We often have uh, a guest from The New American, especially Alex Newman, the great author and uh, speaker. And uh, we're gr- grateful to have Kurt Hyde spend some time. It's a lengthy piece uh, laying out a lot of things that need to happen. And uh, and it's very important topic. So first of all, Kurt, welcome b- uh, to the program. Uh, thanks for writing this, and I hope you're having a good day so far well thank you very much it's nice to be here all right kurt so um election integrity here's one way i'd say this before we get into your piece a little more um no matter how no matter why the simple fact is after 2020 a whole lot of americans don't have confidence in the election system maybe a lot didn't before but a lot a lot a lot whatever the number is even democrats say that system seems pretty pretty um unreliable does that seem fair like a fair assertion to you absolutely absolutely and so the starting point is whatever the reason that we got here we have to understand, I, I used to run the election board in the city of St. Louis, and I used to tell people long before any of this crisis, I'd say there's two things you have to do in election authority. One is run a really good election system. It's a system. A lot of people, a lot of parts, a lot of stuff, count the votes, all that. The second thing you have to do is give people in the community confidence that their vote will count and that they can do it and that they, all those stuff. And so we, we are where we are now. So first, before we get to what we should do, how do we deal with the media that's telling us you can't doubt elections. They're all perfect now. Well, there's a thing in this country called freedom of speech. And if what you're saying <laughs> is true, then mm. they should not be telling you, no, don't say that. Right. All right. So now uh, we're talking with Kurt Hyde. And Kurt, walk me through what's your kind of top 10, ah, that's too many, top two fixes to give to restore election integrity from your piece. Well, probably the top two, huh? Well, let's see. One of them is to <laughs> reinstate, yeah, reinstate voting and the vote counting as public acts, because uh, that huh. is traditional. I'm really thinking that the right way to go is to look back in history, back when our elections were some of the most trusted and open elections anywhere in the world. And one mm-hmm. of the, uh, and, and we had a whole bunch, there's a whole bunch of things in this article, but let's just talk about that because people could walk right in. You did not need to get an appointment as an observer. You were, any member of the public was allowed to just walk in during the voting or during the vote counting. And in fact, the onus was on the people who ran the election. If they illegally kicked anybody out, they got into trouble. Hmm. Um, what does it mean to make it a public act? I mean, what would that? How would that change what's going on? Most people think it's a a civic act or a civic duty. They think it's run by your government. What would what would change if you did that? Well, to make it public again, we'll start with the fact that anybody can just walk 
in a public place, anybody can just walk in and observe. That's all there is to it. Today, in order to uh-huh. uh, observe in an election, I see. you normally have to be appointed, and sometimes you have to get like signatures of more than one candidate. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, everything was done out in the open back then. Uh, we're talking with Kurt Hyde, the piece of the New American about us restoring election integrity. Before I go back to your piece, but I want to throw one at you. Um, uh, uh, what? Why? Why wouldn't it work to make it a national holiday? Keep it on Tuesday, but make it a national holiday. Wouldn't that help, or would it not? I'm not really sure. I'm I'm not really dead set for it or dead set against it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, as far as making it a holiday, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, good. I'm glad I was just putting on a spot with a question there. All right. Now, reinstate paper ballots. At the very least, and we're talking with Kurt Hyde. When I reread your piece, you're talking about the problem of uh, election, electronic um, uh, manipulation. Uh, you know, as I tell people, every day I read about um, hacking into my credit card company, into my Gmail account, into my uh, Amazon Prime account. Somebody loses this. Are we really supposed to believe that this election system that has so little transparency has somehow been unhackable and your point here is is the path back going really back to paper ballots and would you, if you went back all the way to paper ballots would you hand count them or how would you you still use machines to count ballots so what do you where how do you get around that problem of the machines well for one thing uh, we do have things that are called optical scan type vote counting equipment so if people like new hampshire and i actually helped the people in New Hampshire to write that law where uh, their law says that if you're going to use a computer to count votes, then the kind of equipment you purchase must be the kind where the voter marks a ballot and that gets read by the computer. Now, those are called optical scan ballots. And uh, if you also include some good old fashioned uh, recounts and you let the different candidates choose which ones to recount, then that's right. really pretty good. But believe me, uh, but however, I have actually worked as a paper ballot ballot counter in New Hampshire mm-hmm. uh, myself. And um, if you have enough pairs of people, like they paired up Republicans and Democrats, you mm-hmm. and, and you put enough people in there and you organize it properly, you can have all the ballots counted in in, in an hour, uh, two hours at the most. We're talking with Kurt Hyde, and uh, besides uh, having a degree in physics, he was a computer a programmer, a, prof- a programmer, and professional worked in that field. So you know from which you talk. Uh, hey, uh, Kurt, how about in your list of reforms, restoring election integrity? Uh, I do see that uh, mandate the election process be recorded with video and audio. At this point, why isn't that easy? Right, run the, run a secure camera and run it the whole time. So everybody, so now I don't need to have uh, a poll watcher. I don't have to pay uh, uh, pay someone. I don't. Just run a camera and run it in such a way that a thousand people can sit at home and look. I mean, isn't that like I tell my children, you know, in the old days, you would say God is watching. Now you can say Big Brother and Amazon and everybody else is watching. Wouldn't that solve a ton of problems if you just had eyes inside that could say what was happening, could see what was happening? Absolutely. And the people who are against that, to me, they don't have a leg. They do not have a leg to stand on. And I might also add that uh, I was talking with uh, a really great computer professional once who let me know. He said the technology that we have today, we have facial recognition technology 
such that if the same people are voting repeatedly, and the nickname for that is repeaters uh, in the yeah. uh, election fraud field, he said that we would be able to detect the repeaters because we'd be able to tell by the faces who's coming in more than once. So there, 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 there's a lot to say for that, and, for, and, and why are the hidden forces behind the scenes so much against that? Yeah, that's exactly. And well, I mean, and you know, again, we're talking with Kurt Hyde and Kurt, the reason why it's so important for uh, the new American and for authors like you. And when I talk to Alex Newman, uh, you know, what I would say is the is the uh, is the old conservatives, you know, the ones that have stayed uh, with like Phyllis Schlafly and hung in there when a lot of other people slid around to the center. But, you know, I think if conservatives can can lead on saying, hey, um, we don't want a surveillance state, right? We we don't want that data kept forever. But but frankly, your civic duty, your your uh, voting, that's something you're not too, too, shouldn't be too worried about. And I guess some people would say, oh, I don't want any intrusion. You know, I don't want any. Um, the NSA is going to count everything and all be a part. But right now, they're doing it anyway. Is my expectation. And so, um, all right, uh, what uh, in Kurt Hyde in your experience now? You mentioned New Hampshire, where you're from. What is the what is the worst? move that Republicans could do uh, that would not address it? In other words, oh, yeah, look at us. We care. But it's actually not real. Is there is there something that they're they're going to say they're doing that really doesn't help change the equation? It's a funny question, I admit, but uh, it, it, it really is. What is the worst thing those people can do? Well, the worst thing they can do probably is to do nothing. And that's what yeah. they are doing um, in, in many right. cases. But you also need to get informed first. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we wrote this particular article for The New American, because the editor called me and said, um, could you come up with a list of the changes that you think would make things right? Because that's one of the things about the John Birch Society is that the John Birch Society does not only believe in pointing out problems and analyzing them thoroughly, which is a good thing, but they go that extra step and make sure that they recommend a course of action solutions that will yeah. do the right thing because we don't want to make mm-hmm. the same mistake we did in 2002. <laughs> we had problems yep. in Florida in 2000, and then they passed HAVA of 2002, and that just took a bad situation and made it worse. We yep. and so let's. Yep. So that's why that's a good yeah that's a good and that's a good example that's Kurt well, that's what I meant uh, sometimes the solution is worth and one other example is uh, a photo ID which I love requirement that doesn't solve these other problems of the computers and other things unfortunately Kurt I'm up against a, a hard stop it's uh, Kurt Hyde I'll put his article up online uh, restoring election integrity it's uh, valuable and it's such an important topic we'll take a quick break and be right back it's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, grassroots activist, author of 27 books, and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. On this Friday before Valentine's Day, it seems like an opportune time to reflect on the beautiful institution known as marriage. Sadly, the definition of love and marriage has been on the decline for decades. Even back in 1984, Phyllis Schlafly was writing about this travesty. She wrote, Sexual liberation taught men and women to seek temporary pleasures instead of a monogamous lifetime commitment. 
liberation advocates forgot to warn what an awful price would be paid by their children. As always, Phyllis Schlafly's words cut straight to the heart of the problem. The so-called liberation of yesteryear is leaving millions of today's children without the love of a mother and father in the same home. That much is undeniable. However, there's another hidden cost to sexual liberation. Although the movement may claim to provide happiness and fulfillment, it leaves a series of gaping wounds in the hearts of all who fall into its trap. Liberation tries to divorce love from commitment, but that's impossible to do. True love requires commitment because true love requires sacrifice. If you claim to love someone but never look out for that person's interest above your own, you're not really in love. God designed marriage to be a solemn commitment between man and woman to love and honor one another for life. The liberation movement could never compete with the depth and height of this kind of abiding love designed by God. Traditional marriage is wonderful, mysterious, and fulfilling in a way that cannot be substituted. But conservatives don't defend marriage because of platitudes that could be written on a greeting card. The loving care of a mother and a father who are united in marriage is the very best care a child can receive. When men and women embrace sexual liberation, they're putting their own temporary pleasures ahead of their children. Children need a mother and father full-time. They don't need a mother during the week and a father on the weekend. They don't need two mothers or two fathers. They need the love that only a traditional family can provide. I hope you have a wonderful Valentine's Day. Let's celebrate the glorious institution of traditional marriage. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. The traditional family is the building block of our communities and country. That's why it's imperative to support strong marriages, respect fathers, and champion stay-at-home moms. At phyllisschlafly.com, we oppose the liberal attempt to redefine the family. To join us, visit phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Good to be back. And some great interviews today, I tell you. Go, please go to ProAmericaReport.com and check in on those uh, uh, the uh, the interviews, especially John Cribb. I got both of them. The one I did on Andrea Kay's show and the one on this show. It's just extraordinary. Good timing with Old Abe. Uh, Old Abe is the book and Abe Lincoln is the topic uh, this time of year. All right. I do want to point you to, I, I've talked uh, last night on Andrea Kay's show uh, and I've talked on the program here, but I want to highlight the problem problem that we are having in this country with a president who seems to be and I again I don't have a I don't have a hundred percent proof he's only been office in office for a few weeks but even Politico which is a um, you know left leaning leftish uh, leftish website has um, said okay Biden's in no rush to engage China guess who's trying to take advantage and they go into this that basically uh, everybody from France to Russia to others are saying, well, if Biden is going to sit back and do nothing, uh, maybe we'll be the ones that engage China, that it will, I don't know, pressure China, deal with China, and the same thing with the European Union. Again, the uh, the strategy, as it's described in this in this one, they have a Trump trade strategist who says it's a strategy to keep us divided. There's no questions. The Chinese see us shifting, the U.S. shifting, and into a multilateral position. And so the point here is that um, the the White House and the administration has signaled that we're happy to go back into these multilateral deals. And here's what I want you to know. Here's the thing, how I want you to think about this. In the last 48 hours, 
the World Health Organization, who has been proven and shown to be dis- an organization disproportionately influenced by the Chinese. They have not only in the last 48 to maybe 72 hours, and not only have they said that the Wuhan virus didn't come from Wuhan, everybody should stop that. Then they pivoted and they said, um, and by the way, America is really being unfair and nasty and unkind and uncharitable and not nice by saying anything different. They basically, the World Health Organization basically attacked the United States. Now, over at the UN, the UN Human Rights Commission, which uh, with from with which Donald Trump withdrew, saying it had no teeth, it wasn't doing anything serious. We've signaled that we'll rejoin. <clears throat> pardon me, and we'll get back into that. Okay, so we have a question. You have these instances of of basically softening the uh, the intensity of our, our of our bilateral relationship with China, which is where Donald Trump, by pulling out of these multilateral trade deals, the TP. Even redoing NAFTA, pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords. Whenever we were in one of these multilateral deals, the connection to all the other entities and nations gave us even more need to honor our word. And the Chinese don't feel that. They don't have any sense of honoring their word. They don't care. They're not interested. They're not going to do that. And so here we are in the signal, and even Politico is signaling it. The signal is that we are going into these multilateral arrangements, and the examples are legion. You can go one after another. World Health Organization, the Paris Climate Accords, the UN, uh, the uh, the um, the uh, other trade deals. Uh, the, even the EU is signaling that they have such a great sense of how everybody can get work together that they're they're going to you know China's going to be part of that all these things are happening and it's to the detriment not only of our sovereignty which is real but practically it's it, as a very practical matter against the interest of our country and here's why once you set up this sort of multilateral set of relationships as your norm, once you've got everybody thinking that way, one of the problems, one of the dynamics that happens is it, it, corporations decide that they can see the rules under which they can operate. And for about two decades, really two and a half decades, we have had multinational corporations growing in their international business via China. And they've improved their bottom lines and they probably even paid their shareholders. But it's been to the detriment of the American worker, to the detriment of American sovereignty and on and on and on. By the way, I haven't even I haven't even um, uh, I haven't remember. I, I forgot to comment on the cultural stuff where we've got China influencing our um, our uh, media. We've got China influencing our tech. We've got China influencing the uh, the universities through the Confucius centers. All these things are happening. And the signals are happy Lunar New Year. That's what Joe Biden, his first phone call to President Xi was waiting until the Lunar New Year, as I said earlier in the program, to wish Happy New Year. This is insanity. It's insanity. And here's the thing. One of the here's a contrast. And I I heard someone say this recently. Just the contrast between Trump and Biden is going to make you remember Biden, uh, excuse me, Trump more favorably, because here's the contrast. Uh, Trump would say uh, nice things about the leaders, President Xi, Kim Jong Un, but he would pummel the people down below. Uh, he would give tariffs, you know, he'd push the tariffs on. He would, uh, you know, uh, on the trade deals, he would invoke all kinds of trade uh, 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 penalties and things like that. And with uh, Kim Jong-un, he made sure that everybody knew he wasn't going to tolerate this. Not, but he, he, he would make nice above board and below board, he'd kick him in the shins. 
What Biden has done is make nice above board, say nice things, call them on Lunar New Year. But below board, there's no shin kicking. It's mostly coddling and and making people feel good and saying it's all going to work out great and being kind of here we go. What else can we do for you? What else do we need? It's been extraordinary to watch. And we're going to pay a price for this. We're going to pay a price uh, for our shift and for the impact it's going to have on our nation and on what we're doing. So that's uh, what you need to know on this one. I want to finish up. I want to come back around. And by the way, let me remind you, the nationalpulse.com, that uh, Raheem Kassam uh, site is really effective, really good. And and of course, visit the epictimes.com. I do it every day to check on what they're writing about. So good and so, uh, so thorough and so real. Uh, it's really good. So all right. Thank you, as always, to our great Noah the technical director uh, for keeping everything online. So many pieces, so many parts. And uh, as always, thank you to Joanna for booking our great guests. And thank you for listening. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com to uh, get all these interviews and follow all the stuff we're doing. We'll take a break. I mean, we won't take a break. We'll be back tomorrow. Ed Martin here on the ProAmerica Report. America Report on The Answer, San Diego.